bizarre topic. Fear Not is a series that kind of starts a little bit in a dark space. I suppose that in many senses, that's not a very good marketing tactic. Um, If we want people to come to listen to sermons at our church, maybe we could have started with something a little bit more, a little bit more attractive, a little bit brighter, you know, maybe a little bit more sexy. Ours is a world that seems to respond so much more effectively to those kinds of things. But I hope we all accept that church life is different and needs to be different. In fact, more than that, I hope that we expect church life to be different. Stepping into church is not the same I'm sure we all understand, is walking into the pavilion where we walk around looking for something that will attract us. Is that me, Andre? How am I doing that? Just being... Apologies about that. So coming to church is not the same as going to the pavilion. We, we, we start off with the issue of fear in church because that is a reality, as dark as it is, that many of us, in fact, I'd honestly suggest all of us are constantly grappling with the issue of fear. It's a massive reality in our lives. I mean, if you just think about it for a moment, from the earliest, earliest moment in our lives, The first sound to come out of our mouths when we were delivered in that delivery room, the first sound to come out of our mouths was a wail of fear. It was intrinsic to us right from that stage. Basically, when we hear those little babies crying in the delivery room, they're shouting out, what have you done to me? Where's the walls gone? What's this bright light? What have you done to me? And right from the beginning, we're grappling with the issue of fear. And, and, and I don't know about you, but it, it, it really doesn't take much time for me to place a fairly significant list of fears in my life on the table. A list of fears that's, that's always lurking somewhere there in the back of my mind. I'm sure you've got a, a similar list. If you just pause long enough to think about it, I fear the collapse of significant relationships around me for whatever reason that I'd lose someone that's important to me. Just as John shared last week, I fear the failure of our church achieving its God-given goal. Again, for whatever reason, I worry about that. I fear the chaos that corruption and prejudice are bringing into our country or have brought into our country. Where is that going? I fear the fragility of my own character and my own very real ability to self-destruct and mess up life. I fear what will happen if you get to see Eve as a pastor. I fear a home invasion. I fear for my future, for my girls, their safety, their success. And so the list could go on and on and on if I just spend more time thinking about it. These are the fears that lurk in the back of my mind. What does your list look like? What do you fear? Let's just watch the screen for a second. 
was cut very short there, but the mom was saying, I can't really breathe when I think of losing one of my children. Such raw emotion, and I'm sure every mom here can relate completely to that. That's just the nature of moms. Folks, fear is a lifelong reality. But I think it's crucially important to recognize another very, very important, powerful reality. And that is the fact that over and over and over again, throughout Scripture, God calls us away from the zone of fear. King David, for instance, after years of a massively successful reign, is busy handing over responsibilities to his son Solomon, his successor. And key, as Barry actually mentioned a little bit earlier, key to his responsibilities is this frightening, maybe even a looming prospect of building a temple to God's specifications. Make no mistake, this isn't a ball a new young king can deserve to drop. It isn't the same as simply building a church building. Let's, let's be clear on that. In that day and age, there was only one temple in existence. To build this temple was possibly the most holy thing anyone in the, that day and age could be caught in. This young king had now been given this responsibility. The temple was the earthly representation of the presence of God amongst his people. Best he not mess this up. And so David, King David, puts this mass, the massiveness of this task before his son. And maybe it was the look in Solomon's eyes, or maybe David was just quite aware of where his kid was. And he immediately says, having put this task before his son, he immediately says, Do not be afraid or discouraged. The Lord God, my Lord, the one that has made a success, I'm sure he's saying, the one that has made a success of, of my life and my reign, the Lord God, my Lord, is with you as well. A young girl 2,000 years ago is approached in a home by an angel. This angel appears in a room. And again, something in his words, or maybe just the fact of his presence, sends an absolute chill down her spine, as I can imagine any of us would feel if we were confronted by an angel out of the blue. After his greeting, the first words out of the angel's mouth, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Don't be afraid. Don't let, let that define this moment. Later in his life, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the horrible thought that he will leave them in the near future. For the last few years, Jesus had been their teacher, had been their comforter, had been a friend, had been their guide. Jesus had led them, had counseled them, had directed them, taught them, given them a world vision, whatever the case may be. Jesus had been everything to them, and now he was leaving them. All the identity and values had revolved around Jesus for the last few years. Now he's going to leave them alone to face this world that was anti them, to face the wolves. This is what Jesus says to them. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. 
no matter how logical that fear was, Jesus again calls them away from fear. Decades after the death of Jesus, the writer to the Hebrews is wrapping up his letter to the Hebrews and his concluding statements. We find him living the moment as Jesus had always encouraged he live, the, the way he lived. And so we read him saying, we, we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? At least 145 times in Scripture, the words or the idea of fearing not, of fearing not, are spoken over and over again. It's an unavoidable message in Scripture. You will encounter it if you read through Scripture. But please, hear me. I don't want to oversimplify the issue of fearfulness and everything that's wrapped up in the idea of fear. If faith is, as if faith is simply an off switch that can be flipped when you're feeling a little bit scared. It's not like that. Fearfulness, I'm sure we all know, it's a complicated business. There's paranoia, there's phobias, there's anxiety, there's horror, there's dread, and so the list could go on. These are all words that are associated with the central core emotion of fear. And so when we hear the word of God saying, Fear not, I guess we need to know where to go with that. What to do with that encouragement or that instruction or that invite. Take, for instance, the simple issue of getting a fright. I walked down the steps a couple of nights ago into our dark house, and my brilliant young daughter thought it was a great idea to jump from behind a wall and shout in my face. Just for a moment, I lost every shred of dignity or control that I've ever possessed. When I calmed down and mentioned to her that she had now been excluded from my will, she became a little bit drop-lip, but you can relax. We've worked, worked through the issue now, and on weekends when she's allowed back into the house, we get on quite well. But at the heart of that moment, that, that skrik, at the heart of that moment was an element of fear. Is God saying, no, Rich, your response of your eyes dilating, your heartbeat increasing, your fists clenching, no, Rich, that's both wrong and sinful. Is that what God is saying when he says, fear not? I mean, I'm always amazed at some of those nature clips on YouTube or where it is where a lion or an elephant is video charging at some poor cameraman. Again, in those moments, is God saying to that cameraman, just sit back and enjoy the moment of violent aggression as it unfolds before your eyes? Don't be afraid. No, of course he's not saying that. That response is completely natural. I honestly believe that God has set up through the history of our world and mankind years of training to breed into us a survival instinct that causes us appropriately to lean very quickly towards fight or flight at times. Fear not doesn't extinguish those instinctive moments of fear. And we see this happening a number of times in Scripture where people are said to have fallen to their knees or fallen on their faces in the presence of God. It's an instinctual thing. 
the natural response that is ingrained, I think, into the core of our being that is both healthy and right. That kind of responsiveness, that instinctive responsiveness. Having said that, we all know also that fear is not simply a compulsive thing. It's not always just a knee-jerk reaction. It's much more layered than that. At some point, fear moves from the realm of instinct into the realm of self-management, doesn't it? And that is where God's word to us, not to fear, becomes very important for us to hear. A response to a threat now has an element of choice added into the mix. And the call of God not to fear is to use that choice wisely in a way that draws us deeper into the ways and the will of God. There's quite a bit at stake here in terms of how we use this choice. An unwise management of fear where fear is the final dictator of who we are. Where fear will dictate to us and and dominate us and tell us who we'll become. Where fear manipulates us in any moment and and, and is given free reign to manipulate us to act in any given moment in in a certain way. When When that fear is given free reign, it has something about it that will constantly draw us away from God and away from his will in our lives. A couple of ways this could be seen to happen. Fear has the ability to cause us to run away a lot. Or maybe more importantly, because running away at times is absolutely crucial, but more importantly, we run away at inappropriate times. So we just need to picture the disciple Peter, this big burly, I think he was a one of those hardcore fishermen, you know, shake his hands and you feel in his hands the calluses of years of fishing. Tough bloke. You see him running away from the fireside because a little girl recognized him. Fear will cause us to retreat. It will cause us to back down. It will cause us to withdraw or shut up when God is calling us to stand or to confront or to fight. Fear also has the ability to redefine every risky moment as if it's something fundamentally bad. To the point that risk becomes the enemy. Not sin, not compromise or injustice. No, no, no. Risk becomes in and of itself the enemy. And so as we can imagine, fear then becomes the birthplace or something of a stalled existence. I'm not going anywhere because anywhere beyond this point is risky and therefore bad. And so it becomes the birthplace of a stalled existence and an addictive drug that constantly requires more of the same, more of the same, more of the same because more of the same equals safety. Risk is bad. Just give me more of the same, the safe and the comfortable. Fear also, I think, survives on the impulse, on the thought that my own well-being is the highest good. Listen, there's truth to the fact that a person is of massive worth. We fully understand it. It's why Christ is willing to die for anyone. His love for us shows the incredible amount of worth that we have. 
But we have to ask ourselves the question, is the success or is the comfort and performance of my life the greatest good? No, it isn't. The greatest good, if God is God, the greatest good is Him receiving the glory He deserves, the responses that, that He deserves. Our well-being must always be second to that, the highest goal. Fear of the things of this world. If, that, if those fears grab us and, and dictate to us, fear of the things of this world would never agree to God being God. Fear of the things of this world will always teach us that our wants, that our needs, that our feelings are the most important thing, the greatest good. Eugene Peterson, a bloke that I'm loving reading at the moment. You really should try to get one of his books at some point if you're a reader. Eugene Peterson, remember that name. Eugene Peterson calls those three things the new trinity. When he speaks about our needs, our wants, our desires. He calls it the new trinity. He reckons we choose nowadays to worship and follow and dedicate our lives to these things rather than to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's where our worship is directed. And so God calls us away from fear so that we are drawn to gaze at the, the, at the things that exist beyond the things of this earth that our eyes can start to see beyond the values and the threats of this earth. Fear also opens us up to manipulation. John did touch on this last week. All I need to do is know what your fear is, and then I have an incredible amount of control over you. Hermann Goering, during Nuremberg trials of World War II, one of the architects of that horrific holocaust, once said, the people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. That is easy. How frightening are those words? That is easy. All you have to do is tell them they're being attacked, denounce the peacemakers for lack of patriotism, and exposing the country to danger. It works the same in any country. In other words, spark their fear and use it. They manipulate them. Fear manipulates people. Look, unredeemed fear, the kind that, that exists without God in the picture, can lead us down these and many other paths, very few of them towards the heart of God's will for us. Very few of them towards the awesomeness of life that God wants for us. And so out of a love for us, God invites us to not fear. Out of a love for us, God invites us to fear not. But is that all he says? Does he simply say, fear not, and leave it at that? Well, no. There seems to be a bit of a formula to the way God says it. Now, God doesn't work very often according to formula. Um, very, very seldom. But there seems to be some kind of rhythm when he calls us not to fear. See if you can see it in some of those verses I used earlier. Do not be afraid or discouraged. The Lord God, my Lord, is with you. Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. 
two other verses. Exodus 14.30. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God himself will fight for you. Deuteronomy chapter 2. It's quite self-evident. The formula goes something like this. Whenever a fear is mentioned or encountered, the fear isn't overlooked or diminished or explained away as if it's a nothing. No, an anchor thought is placed right next to the fear. A thought that shows us the way around or through or circumventing that fear. I love the idea of an anchor thought. Some of those that study these kinds of things coined that phrase. But it's such a descriptive name, isn't it? An anchor thought. This is one for those older people amongst us. I don't know if you are like this, but do you ever go into this nostalgic zone where you start and listen to old school music that somehow teleports you back to some event or an era or relationship from years ago? My mom is a classic when it comes to that. Frank Sinatra is her guy, old blue eyes, she calls him. She sits there and she listens and remembers moments back in the day. She often drizzles, dribbles, you know, like cries a little bit. She remembers my dad before he passed away and how they used to dance the night away. That's an anchor thought. I mean, that's an anchor song. The idea of an anchor song is it takes us back to a feeling, an emotion associated with something that you are doing. An anchor thought works very similarly. It holds a part of our emotions. It takes us back to an understanding, a truth. It governs our mind and our well-being in the midst of the chaos and fear. It takes us to a safe place. That's what an anchor thought is. It helps us to, to pause the escalation of fear, to find some control over what we're thinking and how we're behaving and the choices we're making. That's what we're so privileged to witness happening in all those verses that we read. In those weird, unnerving, desperate, sometimes very, very scary moments, each of these believers finds an anchor thought in who their God is, in what his nature is like, in his wisdom, or in his love. They find an anchor in who God is. We can look elsewhere for those anchor thoughts, let's be honest. But when the massive issues are on the table, the, the kinds of things that really do get to our heart and our soul, only God can fill that moment with the presence that is needed. And so Mary, as she's confronted by that angel, the, the, the anchor thought that was offered in that moment is, do not be afraid, Mary. God has favored you. And I wonder over the next couple of months and maybe even years, even right till the end of her life, I wonder how often she returned to that phrase, I am favored by God. When people were accusing her for being pregnant out of marriage, when she was grappling with the thoughts of how to raise this incredible son, the inadequacy that comes with it, God again and again said, I have favored you. And she went back to that thought over and over again. Folk, those people, their relationship with their God makes a genuine difference to the moment of fear that they're experiencing. It's called faith. The God-given ability to see beyond the here and now, to see through this immediate threat, 
you to see God instead. It's called conviction. A reliance on the core truths in our soul that redefine our perspectives on this world. Faith and conviction, the kinds of things that we followers of God do have access to. I want to end off this sermon this morning with a reading of a psalm, a little bit of a meditation kind of reading of a psalm. The worship team can kind of front. Um, I'm also going to ask that we, we dim the lights and maybe close those curtains uh, on the sides right now, if you can do that. I'm going to create quite a, a dark kind of scenario here, simply because I think darkness was one of the the earliest fears any of us experienced. The fear of darkness. I love the Psalms because they're so real. And I want to read the Psalm. It's Psalm 40. And um, I'm going to ask you just to imagine this Psalm being penned and written by somebody that has grappled with fear in their life anxiety or worry in their life. So just take a deep breath, relax for a moment. I want you to start off just to go back to that list of fears that you have. Just think about them for a moment. Consider how, how tough it has been grappling with those fears. How at times they unnerve you. How at times they belittle you. They make life tough. They make the future look threatening. And how you've waited on God to breathe relief in the light of those fears. And now listen to the psalm. Psalm 40 is a David psalm. I waited and waited and waited for God. At last he looked. Finally he listened. He lifted me out of the ditch and he pulled me from deep mud. He stood me up on a solid rock to make sure I wouldn't slip. He taught me how to sing the latest God song, a praise song to our God. More and more people are seeing this. And they enter the mystery, abandoning themselves to God. Blessed are you who give yourselves over to God. Turn your backs on the world's sure thing. Ignore what the world worships. The world's a huge stockpile of God wonders and God thoughts. Nothing and no one comes close to you. I start talking about you, telling what I know, and quickly run out of words. Neither numbers nor words account for you. Doing something for you, bringing something to you, that's not what you're after. Being religious and acting pious, that's not what you're asking for. You've opened my ears so I can listen. And so I answered, I'm coming. I read in your letter what you wrote about me. Now I'm coming to the party you've thrown for me. 
that's when God's word entered my life and became part of my very being. I've preached you to the whole congregation. I've kept nothing back, God. You know that. I didn't keep the news of your ways a secret. I didn't keep it to myself. I told it all how dependable you are, how thorough. I didn't hold back pieces of love and truth for for myself alone. I told it all. Let the congregation know the whole truth, the whole story. Now, God, don't hold out on me. Don't hold back your passion, your love and truth are all that keeps me together. When troubles ganged up on me, a mob of sins passed counting, I was so swamped by guilt I couldn't see my way clear. More guilt in my heart than hair on my head, so heavy the guilt that my heart gave out. Soften up, God. Intervene. Hurry and get me some help. So those who are trying to kidnap my soul will be embarrassed and lose face. So anyone who gets a kick out of me being miserable will be heckled and disgraced. So those who pray for my ruin will be booed and jeered without mercy. But all who are hunting for you, all who are hunting for you, oh, let them sing and be happy. Let those who know what you're all about tell the world you're great. And you're never quitting. Me? I'm a mess. I'm nothing and have nothing. Please make something of me. You can do it. 